Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've watched, seen, whatever, since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, here's what I've seen. I guess we're going to go back and forth. I'm just going to leap right in. Yeah. Um, Maybe there's some overlap. I don't think so, but you never know. um, I'm going to say, just looking here. That there's definitely no overlap. Okay. All right. Uh, so because the first thing I saw, unless you found time to make it to the theater to see the new film from the director of such uh, indie standouts as Chuck and Buck or or uh, Star Maps or um, The Good Girl. Last year he did Duck Butter. His new movie is called Like a Boss. Oh, yes. It stars Rose Byrne and Tiffany Haddish and Selma Hayek. I did not realize he was <laughs> behind that. Uh, yeah. yeah. And this is not his first. He also made, like, Alexander and the Horrible, Terrible movie yeah, yeah. that day or whatever. This is not his first, like, big studio comedy. Yeah. Um, but it definitely does seem like a job for hire because it feels phoned in. I, they're just... Like a Boss is just... Uh, I'm... I always get my hopes up for these kinds of movie. I like... I like light studio comedies. I tend to like female centric light studio uh, comedies. And sometimes you get something like a girl's trip, which is fantastic. Um, And when I saw the trailer for this, I was actually kind of excited for, I like all three of those uh, of the, of our leads. And I guess one is more of the supporting, but, uh, but Hayek is the, yeah, she's the the villain, the villain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was excited for it and, uh, it looked like a fun energy. And, uh, then the reviews came out. I was like, I guess I'll skip it. Yeah. It really does feel like, I mean, it makes sense. They cut a good trailer from it because it, I said this in my review, it feels like a movie that only exists to make trailers. Sure. Nothing within the movie. Nothing has any, uh, uh, weight either dramatic or comedic. It's just goes from setup to setup. Like it's made to just like you can cut here's some yeah. here's some outrageous things you can put in a trailer you know they're smoking weed no no there's a baby in the room that sort yeah. of thing um, uh, it's it's just it's just full of that um, it feels like they relied on Tiffany Haddish and Rose Byrne to do a lot of improv mm-hmm. they're obviously good at that but sometimes it shows when that's all you have yeah you know um, and I mean there's some, there's some decent stuff in there. But also, as often happens in these kinds of comedies, um, uh, well, we talked about the, um, what was it, uh, the Ghostbusters, the new-ish Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, I mean studio comedies. I'm not ta- I didn't. <laughs> I didn't mean to pick two female-centered comedies. It has nothing yeah. to do with that. I mean, these kind of like newer studio comedies, what happens is they get great comedic actors and then have such a half-assed bullshit premise that they end up having to do most of the work just trying to keep the character and the story on the track and therefore the supporting players end up being the actual funny ones you know like chris hemsworth you know in a vacuum chris hemsworth is nowhere near as funny as the four women who play the ghostbusters but he gets more laughs in ghostbusters because that's all he's there to do is get laughs. right and his character is slightly more focused which is to say you're dumb and there and no story rides on you. Uh, exactly. And yeah, so, so that's all he has to do. Yeah. And and so like and so again here you get some of the funniest stuff happens uh with the supporting cast, particularly Billy Porter, who I uh, I don't know. I've never seen he's on that show Pose. Oh, okay, and he's yeah. made a lot of uh, gotten a lot of attention for his performance on that show and also for being a very like uh sort of fun and flamboyant uh, red carpet presence, you know. Okay. And I get why people like him because he's one of the best parts in the movie. He has the only like there's a uh, <laughs> there there's a part where he um 
storms out of a like a work lunch at a public restaurant <laughs> in a way that is so over the top and absurd. It's the one like just truly funny moment yeah. in the whole movie is just him going way over the top. And then also, I know you don't watch Insecure. Right, yeah. But there's a, um, a woman who I think is on the writing staff of Insecure who got cast on the show and has become one of the breakout characters. Her name's Natasha Rothwell is the, is the, um, the actress's name. And uh, she plays part of uh, Tiffany Haddish and, and, uh, and Rose Byrne's friend group. And she, she also knocks it out of the park. Those two are just great in the movie. Yeah. Well, in, in a heavily improvised movie, yes, those types of smaller characters that are, that are, you know, peripheral are going, they're just, they're going to work better because especially something like Ghostbusters, which is a plot heavy movie to go back to what you're talking about. And then something like this, which is like, oh, well there are very specific and it would appear intricate plot points. This doesn't really, you know, the reason that the import going back this all, well, I would say this all started with Judd Apatow, right? Like 40 year old virgin <laughs> and not, and knocked up. Those are, yeah, there are, are story beats, but those are not tightly plotted stories. They sure certainly could have been cut down, but so much of it is just like, there's such hangout comedies that is like, yeah, there's, there's no sense of urgency here. Mm-hmm. So you can sit back and let these people bounce off each other. And it's fun. Um, I've been rewatching a lot of old episodes of Dr. Katz, yeah, uh, professional therapist. And, you know, everything between him and, and everything, everything between Jonathan Katz and John Benjamin is improvised around a very loose structure, but like it's, it's, and it feels so natural and it's so pleasant Mm -hmm. and it's so loose, but that's because it it can be like, not everything. Yeah. You can't apply the improv thing to every type of comedy there is. In fact, I'd say maybe only five to 10% of the comedies made can actually bear that out. Yeah. Um, I feel like every movie journal, we go long on whatever the first movie is. Sure. We're like warming up. Yeah. It's a shame it had to be like a boss this time. <laughs> so uh, what did, what did you watch? I watched the, uh, Leica film missing link, which I don't worry. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, I liked it. It was a very, did you see it? I didn't see it. No, it's a very pleasant I film. A very nice woman from like a, at the Hollywood Critics Association Awards. And I'm sh- I have no doubt that she was extremely nice because this film just, it's, it looks really good. It, fe- it's, it just has a nice feel to it. Um, it's light as a feather, um, despite having some, some darker plot elements. Uh, but I think one thing that, that just kind of gets me is and I don't think I can put my finger on exactly what it is or, or how to, how to say it. So I'll just put it this way that like in this film, you have, uh, all these very proper, it's like a Victorian kind of thing. Um, you have these very proper British gentlemen and women and that sort of thing. Um, and it has kind of an old feel to an old English feel to it. Uh, and then the character, of the of the Bigfoot voiced by Zach Galifianakis is introduced and he just talks like Zach Galifianakis. And so I look at that and I look at stuff like Kubo and the two strings and just, and then even a movie like, uh, like uh, Claws that I really liked, um, and is visually beautiful. Um, that has kind of this, this anachronistic modern sensibility that 
I just don't find that amusing, and I certainly don't find it novel anymore. The idea, for example, well, definitely. I mean, the Aladdin was twenty five. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, like there was a time. And hey, uh, you go, but you go to Jungle Book, and there's Phil Harris uh, scatting with uh, that's right. with uh, Louis Prima, and so like, okay, that's it's, and yet somehow like it seems maybe it's just because I grew up with it, but. It's also not trying to be overly clever. Mm-hmm. It's not trying to court uh, a, a certain adult sensibility. Um, but there's just something about like certain modern films where they just incorporate these characters, and the and the comedy is just. I can't quite put my finger on it. Like if you, I would, I would love for you to watch it. Cause I feel like you would, I think you and I have a similar comedic sensibility and I think you yourself, it's not that I'm sick of it. It's not that I think it's terrible. It's just that it's so nondescript. And part of me is like, I would prefer just a, just a straightforward, like, yeah, just let these characters be British and let them be very proper. You don't have to introduce this other element. Like I'll be able to follow it. And I think kids will too, uh, without this other element. Um, but that said, the film is still enjoyable, um, and visually gorgeous. And, uh, yeah, I, I liked it, but, uh, didn't love it. So, um, <clears throat> speaking of, I'll tell you about a movie I did love. Okay. That I've been, uh, I, I, this movie's, uh, 43 years old. Okay. Now. Um, and I had never gotten around to seeing, seeing it because I'd always just sort of almost subconsciously understood it's supposed to be not one of Martin Scorsese's best films. Okay. People are wrong. New York, New York oh, is yeah. amazing. Have I've you never, seen it? I've not seen it. It's and I I feel like yeah people don't people don't like it because it's outside of his usual thing and also like but I bet every time I've heard about it, I'm like it's Scorsese it's it's got New York twice in yeah. the title like it's <laughs> yeah. gonna feel like him although a lot of it doesn't even take place in New York hmm. um, but that's where they meet and that's um, uh, so it's well here's the thing I I think I honestly think a big part of the reason people. Uh, maybe didn't like it at the time and that reaction is stuck is the same reason we've talked about burn after reading. Yeah. The burn after reading came out after no country for old men. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it was, it's such a different thing from what, what uh, a movie that everyone agrees is one of the Coen brothers best movies. And admittedly some, big Lebowski didn't make a huge splash after a, Fargo. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that this is, on the heels of Taxi Driver, something that's so different from Taxi Driver. Yeah. Yeah, it probably did. Uh, uh, people just didn't, maybe didn't know where to grab a hold of it at the time. But seen out of that context, um, it's really fantastic. And it, I, I did have some hesitation early on until I realized that oh, you're supposed to. like it, Because it seems like at the beginning... The way that Robert De Niro's character comes on to Liza Minnelli's character mm-hmm. is like, is he supposed like he's supposed to be this like charming smooth talker? But I was like, I think this guy's just like harassing her. I think he's just like a dick. <laughs> and then you realize as the uh, as the movie goes on, it kind of switches 
it's a very long movie. It's over two and a half hours, hmm. but it gradually switches to Liza Minnelli's point of view. And you realize this is not a love story. This is a story about a woman who got herself into and now needs to stay away from hmm. an emotionally abusive relationship. Um, and so to do that various sort of like uh hard bitten sort of social relationship drama yeah. against the backdrop of this like throwback to forties musicals, um, is it's weird. Uh, but I think it, uh, I, I think it works. Uh, I like, I like the songs. I didn't realize, I thought it was a musical musical, mm. but it's more like cabaret. Like it's okay, all yeah, the yeah. songs are saying are yeah. sung. There's a lot of songs in it, but they're all sung for a reason. Uh, cause Liza Minnelli's character is a singer. So, uh, you, you're making a face. Here. No, I'm thinking of something okay. in regards to cabaret, which I'll ask you in a moment. Go on. Um, uh, but it, um, it it even does the the thing that um, movies like uh, I guess Sing in the Rain has a big sort of like dance montage number. Right. La La Land ends or you know has this has this thing and it has another thing like that and uh, it's I, I couldn't help but think of La La Land weirdly having seen La La Land even though that La La Land came out 39 years after New York, mm-hmm. New York having seen La La Land first I couldn't help but think of La La Land during this section at the end and think about it in La La Land it's like oh it's so sad that they don't end up together look what could have been right whereas in New York New York you're like god I hope she doesn't take it back <laughs> like I really hope they don't end up together the best thing for her to be the best thing for her would be to to live her own life but um i'd be fascinated to watch it on a double bill with one from the heart oh yeah, yeah. you know like these uh project forest is going to come up again uh, in this episode oh interesting like. yeah uh go ahead so i really do like cabaret quite a bit both the film and just the musical in yeah. general yeah um and uh like a week ago, I found myself uh, singing uh, in the car by myself. It was just stuck in my head. Uh, is it is it t- uh, tomorrow belongs to me, or is it the, f- the <laughs> You're future? You're singing the Nazi song. I'm singing the Nazi song, <laughs> yeah. and I'm and as I was singing it, I'm just like, "Damn it!" It's like the song is really good. It's a it's a really well structured song, and it has a nice. There are just certain little musical touches that. I respond to, um, like little flourishes. And, uh, and so I'm singing, I'm like, why does the song have to be so memorable? Yeah. <laughs> it, like really, really bothered You're me. You're like the opposite of George Costanza in the limo with the neo-Nazis. <laughs> Do you ever, Peter Krause is one of the neo-Nazis. Okay. Yes. Cause they, they, on a sort of whim, they decide to at the airport pretend they're the yes, person that's right. Sign. Okay. And it turns out like they were picking up like a well-regarded <laughs> neo-Nazi for a neo-Nazi rally. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so George is pretending to be this neo-Nazi, yeah. but he has the song. If I were a rich man from <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof stuck in his head. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. That's wonderful. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. So yeah, uh, New York, New York, it's, um, I love a town. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's not a, it's not what I thought. It's not a love story. Um, it's a, it's an intentionally de-romanticized, but still very beautiful version of, uh, of a 40s type musical. Really liked it. And it's a wonderful trilogy of, of Robert De Niro w- ruining women's lives. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, ta- taxi driver, taxi driver, New York, New York, raging bull. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the, did I say trilogy? Yeah. Okay, good. But it sounded like you were going to say another one. No, it's it's those three. And then, uh, did he make anything between Raging Bull and uh, King of Comedy? I don't know, but... Um, he kind of ruins everybody's lives in that. I'm realizing that, because, yeah, one of my uh, most shameful blind spots is I've never seen King of Comedy. Oh, my gosh, and you'd I love it so much. At this point, it's the only 
De Niro Scorsese movie that I haven't seen. Uh, New York, New York was the only other one left. I, th- mm. I think I've seen all of his other collaborations with, with uh, Scorsese, but not, uh, not King of Comedy. That's the one I got to see. It is straight. Like it's because Scorsese had, had sort of moved on to like DiCaprio. Um, I for I think I forgot just how much Scorsese worked with De Niro. I count um, nine. Hold on. Let me see if I can do it off the top of my head. Okay. I think there's nine. Okay. I'm not going to go in order. I'm not going to be able to do that. All right. But there's roughly, there's Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Raging Bull, uh, King of Comedy, Goodfellas, Casino, Irishman, and Cape Fear. That is, that's what I've got as well. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And you mostly went in order and then you threw Cape Fear at the end. I was like, did he forget Cape? No, yeah, I there skipped it is. Over, yeah, there no, it is. I, I did forget it in the moment. I was like, I know there's something else there. Um, um, Cape Fear, which I think I like more than you do. The Cape Fear remake? Yeah, but you know what? I think it's because you're so... I love love the original so much. Yeah, I do too, but I... uh, I think I I I probably... When I think back on uh, the Scorsese Cape Fear, because I haven't seen it in a long time, I think I probably have changed enough as a film fan. I think I could appreciate more what he's doing now. Hmm. Um, Having now seen stuff like Shutter Island, like the... uh, over the top, like histrionic Scorsese is something we don't see very often, but, uh, I liked it with shutter Island. So I think I would probably enjoy it more, uh, to go back and watch, uh, his Cape fear. All right. All right. Next for me is a rewatch. And, uh, I've kind of told myself that if I rewatch something and I don't have anything new to say about it, that I won't say anything. Um, I won't mention it here, but, uh, in this case, it's a film I've seen a million times, uh, but I rewatched it with one of my uh, middle school classes, uh, and these kids skew on the younger side of middle school. So we watched the 1951 Disney Alice in Wonderland, which I've never seen. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. Yeah, I've never uh, seen it. I've read the book. It is. I saw, I remember I did see that made for NBC miniseries, like star studded miniseries from like was that like the, the late, Yeah, 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 yeah. With uh, Martin Short as the Mad Hatter, I think, and like Whoopi Goldberg Goldberg as the Cheshire Cheshire Cat. Cat. Yeah, yeah. Is Um, George Went one of the Tweedledee Tweedledum? Yeah, and I think Robbie Coltrane is the other. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, "Yeah, that works out. So I saw that. Okay, it's not the same. Um, (laughs) I've also seen the Jan Svankmeyer Alice, and then Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Um, But yeah, uh, I love this movie so much, and why? And I grew up with it, and it's a it's a film that has that always creeped me out. Uh, when I was a kid, I was like, this is so stressful. And I don't remember who it was. It might've been uh, Paul F. Tompkins. There was some comedian that was talking about Alice in Wonderland that ultimately was just, just a land of assholes. It was just uh-huh. people that were just jerks. Uh, and that's indeed what it is. So it's kind of like uncut gems. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Hang on. I've got some theories now. Uh, Oh, I, maybe I, uh, maybe I should go back to school and write my, uh, uh, doctor uh, do my doctoral thesis yeah um so one of the things but i'll say this from an academic standpoint i forget that alice in wonderland came out so early like it's 51 now granted uh disney had been had been making features for a while but i mean at the same time not it's it's not that deep into the bench which means that disney was still finding itself okay you know, uh, the idea of the Disney princess outside of Snow White, uh, the, the idea of the Disney princess, which is such an iconic concept now, that is that was not established. And the idea and I find myself wondering if they had not made an animated 
if they had not made an animated version of it then, and it didn't occur to, to them to do it until maybe 10 years later, would they have done it? Mm. Would they have, as they did with the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland, would they have put uh, an external structure on it? Because the whole nature, as you know, is she's walking around, you know, talking to assholes. Yeah. Um, and would they have felt the need? No, we need more than that. Because I, and that's what's exciting to me uh, when I rewatch it is that like, knowing what we know about what the company would become and what would it, what it was already getting close to now, but knowing that it makes me treasure it all the more because I think if it were made later, maybe not five years, but like 10, 10 or plus years later, I think it would have been a very different film as opposed to what it is, which is just a series of vignettes. Um, with some really, uh, I say really memorable songs, some really beautiful animation, uh, and some, some extremely memorable characters. I am particularly a fan of, uh, the Cheshire cat, uh, voiced by Sterling Holloway and who would then go on to do the voice of, you know, Winnie the Pooh. And hmm. I told my students that, and it blew their mind because like he, his voice isn't that different from one to the other, but it's, it's how he turns it. He realizes how creepy his voice can be if he just twists it a little bit. And so, uh, I really appreciated the film in ways that I already did, but then thinking about this other stuff and realize like, Oh, I'm so happy that they chose to make it when they did. Um, before they really developed an official identity and what it means to be Disney. You know, think about like, think about Pinocchio, uh, which came out in 1940. That's got that horrifying donkey sequence. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they would have done that, uh, if they made that film, you know, uh, 20 years later or something like that. So it just makes me treasure those early movies. Uh, when, because again, you, they might not exist in that form if they had made them later. It reminds me, well, like, I mean, Little Mermaid is what, 89? 89. And that has some, like, Ursula is scary. Yeah, absolutely. Are In newer Disney movies, are there, like, really scary? Is there scary stuff? <sighs> I mean, when we think of newer, uh, I don't think so. I mean, you go back like to... The, in Frozen, like, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. But I don't know that there's actual, like, visually, like, terrifying stuff like Little Mermaid. No. Or, I mean, think about... Did you ever see The Hunchback of Notre Dame? I did. It's Good God. I mean, like, that villain, his name is he's Frollo, and he's voiced by, what's his name? Not, uh, oh, my gosh. I can't believe I can't remember his name. Mark Hamill. That's him. <laughs> um, but uh, he has this wonderful song called Hellfire that's all demonic, hellish imagery. Like, truly hellish imagery. And... Um, and it's this it's terrifying and dark. I remember there was an interview with Jason Alexander, going back to George Costanza, uh, who did one of the voices of the uh of like the shitty comic relief gargoyles. Oh, right. And Jason Alexander's like, I don't think I'll let my kids watch this movie because <laughs> it's really, really dark. And I just I, I agree with you. I don't think that there's anything quite like that. Uh, and I don't necessarily require it, but uh there is something to be said about uh and we've talked about this before that like Kids can be more resilient, yeah. and and they're aware of that, stuff. Toy Story three, that, that one Toy Story like, three, that's scary. Oh, I I hate to put it this but way, but I'll, ten years ago, I'll put Pixar yeah, like, I kind s- of separate. Do that too, yeah. So um, anyway, yeah. all right. Uh, speaking of dark, I went to the UCLA Film and Television Archive to see a new restoration of a nineteen sixty of a very nineteen sixty seven, a very rarely 
uh, or underseen, apparently, 1967 American independent movie called Spring Night, Summer Night. Okay. The director's name is J.L. Anderson. And uh, the story goes, according to the listing on the UCLA Film and Television Archive uh, website, uh, is that this was like a cheapo sort of like uh, independent movie, and whoever was whoever produced it or had the rights to distribute it uh, didn't think it was commercial enough, and so then went and shot a bunch of like exploitation, like nudie oh, stuff, good. and then released it that way, and that's the only version that existed, and even that was rare for a long time. And then, uh, of all people, I might not, I, I might be on the fence about his films, but of all people, Nicholas Finding Refn uh, mm-hmm. oversaw the sort of restoration, uh, you yeah. know, turning, turning this movie back into what it was supposed to be, which is... Uh, uh, a very heartfelt but also very bleak uh, picture of uh, small town late 60s um, uh, economically depressed small town Ohio okay. where there's this family of losers basically there's the dad <laughs> alternate title <laughs> yeah the, the the father is a great performance I, I can't remember anybody's name you have to look it up but the father uh, his first wife that he actually loved um, died after giving him died in childbirth with his one son his older son mm. his oldest son and then he married another woman had a whole brood of kids with her but now she um, hates him and is a drunk and spends all her time uh, drinking and, and cavorting with other men ah, I was wondering where where does the exploitation where could it fit oh in? no but that no the, I haven't even gotten to it oh okay got it <clears throat> no so the older oh, the oldest boy and the um, rest of the siblings are are half siblings mm-hmm. at best. There's also always the implication that not all of these kids are this sure, fathers because sure. the woman's been out uh, gallivanting around. So um, and obviously cavorting and gallivanting—that's yeah. exciting. So and, uh, obviously it causes some some problems for people when the oldest son and his oldest half sister have sex and she gets pregnant. Uh, I mean, he sort of like runs off for a while and then comes back. And so most of the, most of it takes place in like, like I said, it's called spring night, summer night. Most of the movie takes place on two different days, a few months apart. But mm-hmm. one is the night that they end up getting drunk and having sex together. And then he runs off to Columbus, uh, Ohio and tries to make it big in the big city. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I feel like that's the bleakest thing you've yeah. said so far. And then he comes back to find out, he didn't know that his sister was pregnant. Mm-hmm. She's pregnant. She hasn't told anyone who the father is. Her father, their father is uh, a mess because his wife is more and more disassociated from the family. And he feels like he needs to find uh, the father of this baby and find a husband for his oldest daughter. And it's, it's just like, it's about 85 minutes of people just like walking around being sad, insulting one another it's like it's it's very bleak, but it's also uh, surprisingly well acted for a movie that is almost completely non-professional, mm-hmm. like first-time uh, actors, and so it has that that um, neo-realist. I think I was gonna it's say, a very it, much a neo-realist type approach to, to filmmaking. I was going to say, as far as the story goes, it feels Russian to me. It feels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just because George Costanza in, re- in referring to Russia says when you're bleak, you're bleak. Uh, but no, just this is it, um, like, this is Appalachia bleak. Okay, uh, oh, boy. That's so a special like, kind. Yeah, real real poverty. Um, uh, but yeah, real real drinking um, and some yeah, some incredibly great like raw naturalistic performances. Some really great photography of the of the countryside. There's a there's a couple of motorcycle scenes that are mm-hmm. are very cool. There's some dance scenes where I wondered 
because it's a new restoration. It was on DCP. Obviously, the movie was shot on film. They weren't shooting digital in 1967. Um, but there were some parts during like the dance, like the when that like the honky tonk or whatever, and people were dancing mm-hmm. where it looked. I don't know if it was the compression of the DCP or whatever. It looked digital. Um, hmm. But uh, uh, so in terms of a restoration, I would say it's more about restoring it to the edit that it was yeah. supposed to be. It looks nice, but it's not uh, It's not an, uh, like a beautiful visual restoration. Does it make you curious to see the other version? A little like bit. How on earth a little bit. do they... Who who thought this was an option? That yeah. this is going to save it. That people are going to be like, well, I was depressed before, but I'm really horny. Like, yeah, well, because I mean, there's no sex in the movie, but sex is a subject sure. throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got the mother cheating, you've got the incest. There's also um, the fact that outside of sleeping with her brother, uh, the girl here is is very chaste compared to her her friends. Mm-hmm. The whole scene where she, um, the girl like gets in the in the river and her clothes are all wet so she goes to her friend's house and offers her new clothes i'm sure that's probably where they added course, yeah, yeah. but she's like you should change out of your clothes but the whole time this girl is just walking around in a bikini that is barely on okay and is talking all about how she's gonna go out and like have sex with her boyfriend that night or whatever yeah like so there's there's sex throughout the movie in terms right. of subject matter but there's not any actual sex yeah I'm just imagining the producer that's watching this and being like, I mean, it's right there. It's on the edges. Look, you, you've got me. I'm tantalized. And it's like, yeah. I think you're missing the point here. <laughs> yeah, it's not buddy. supposed to be <laughs> yeah. uh, titillating. All right, um, what did you watch? Next is... Uh, oh, I had a teaser for uh, some upcoming Patreon episode. Okay. There's a great celebrity couple sighting oh, at fun. the screening of Spring Night, Summer Night. Celebrity couple. All right. Yeah. Yeah, so it's exciting. Uh, we'll, we'll, yeah, so patreon.com slash battleship pretension. That's right, and, yes. And we occasionally uh, uh, have fun guessing each other's celebrity settings. Yes. And apparently other people have fun with that as well. I can't imagine why. I think it's like a frustrating type of fun. Sure. Because I'm sure, I'm, I'm always convinced that our listeners have figured it out five minutes before we have. Yeah. But uh, yeah, all right, go ahead. Uh, so next up is uh, Todd Haynes' Dark Waters. Okay. Um, I didn't see which. It. His civil action, Todd Haynes' civil action? 100%. 100% with a touch of the insider in there, um, visually. Uh, the, the whole reason I wanted to watch this is because I was a sucker for these types of movies in the 90s. Um, you know, Rainmaker, civil action, the insider, just this, this <laughs> idea. Didn't like Aaron Brockovich. Um <laughs> But uh, mostly from a script standpoint. In retrospect, I actually really like what Soderbergh is doing visually with that film. It's been a long time um, since it was new. But uh, yeah, it just. So I, I started watching it, and boy, was I 100% right. It pushed all kinds of pleasure buttons for me, including <laughs> okay. the nostalgia one. Um, it's uh, Mark Ruffalo plays this, uh, this guy who is. Uh, he works for uh, a law firm that specifically deals with like environmental law, but on the, from the point of view of like corporations. Uh, so basically how do we keep these people from getting sued too much? And, uh, but then like a friend of his grandmother's, uh, played by as always the wonderful bill camp who mm. I'm, I'm so excited that, uh, he's getting, really good like juicy roles and that's what very much what this is uh he's this farmer you know what he does recently the last few years so there used to be a thing 
Okay. I'm going to go a few steps back. Okay. Every January 1st or a different date of January 1st happens to be a Sunday because I don't want to mm-hmm. compete with football. But every January 1st, the NHL has a thing called the Winter Classic okay. where two teams play an outdoor game at a... They build a rink in like a baseball stadium usually or or, or some place that isn't normally a hockey mm-hmm. stadium. And um, two teams play an outdoor game. It's a big like NBC broadcast. It's a big to-do. Yeah. <clears throat> and for the first... Uh, for a few years, HBO did a miniseries every year where they were following the two teams around in the lead up to the uh the the winter classic and doing a mini series about like the the road to the winter classic or whatever mm-hmm. and then there was kind of i guess after a few years depends on who you uh, like who you ask what happened but there was a falling out between the nhl and hbo in, in doing this and so the nhl started essentially self-producing their own version mm-hmm. that i think at first was on epics and now that it's just like on any the nhl network or whatever but um Anyway, when it was on HBO, the narrator was Liev Schreiber. Oh, sure. Not ever since HBO, the narrator is Bill Camp. Oh, my. So I've been listening to Bill Camp's voice a lot over these last three weeks because I watched the, uh, the, uh, all the episodes of the uh, Predators Stars uh, Road to the Winter Classic miniseries. Obviously. Um, but yeah, so I've been, weirdly, I've been hearing Bill Camp's voice a lot. He's got a great voice. Yeah. Um, and apparently I read an interview with him like, basically the the main reason he got this job is because he and Liev Schreiber have the same agent. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Liev Schreiber was like, oh, my deals with HBO, I can't do this. Got it. And so his agent was like, well, you know, I got this other guy. It's like, I've got someone just like Liev Schreiber. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, but yeah, uh, so he plays this uh, farmer who lives in West Virginia and his cows have been dying and dying quite horribly. Like we see some pretty graphic stuff. Like okay. he, he has cut his cows open and show and like, here's their, here's a jaw. Look at its teeth. Like here's its heart. It's way too big stuff like that. So as, as, uh, Mark Ruffalo's character, um, starts to investigate, he discovers that, Oh, DuPont, this, and this is a true story. DuPont has, uh, been, Man, Mark Ruffalo and Dupont. I know he can't. <laughs> I, I was just like, I think I'm, and he produced this movie. I'm like, he is. He's not going to stick it to this <laughs> this company. Um, it's like you don't hear much about these types of uh, vendettas, but I, I feel like it's uh, there's another thesis going on there. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, so he he investigates Dupont, and it turns out that and it's and it's just the best the best versions of the, uh, versions of these types of movies are also informative and so you learn a lot about teflon and that so much of this has to do with teflon and the the chemical uh process with which, uh in which teflon is produced and so like the same thing that makes uh that makes stuff like not stick to a pan um well that's because uh, it never breaks down, like this this series of carbons that are put together in mm-hmm. a lab. Uh, and for that reason, uh, if a person were to ingest it or breathe it in, it stays in your system forever. Mm. And it also spe- it also uh, it's like it's been estimated that ninety nine percent of all humanity has this this uh, chemical in them as a function of Dupont. And like it's crazy, but. Uh, so it's informative, but I also, one thing that I really love is that not unlike a civil action, but maybe even pushes further, uh, it plays up how long this court, this case takes, like Mm. it starts in 98. The case is not officially done now. 
Wow. But it comes to the movie just decides we're going to end in 2016. Um, so it just, it, it's this guy's whole life. And I remember years ago, Jen and I went to a, uh, um, like a, a, a benefit dinner. Um, and it was all about people, uh, fighting like human trafficking and, and just fighting on behalf, like it, specifically in South America where like the kids don't have, where certain kids don't have any guardians. And so it's like, okay, well we will sort of act as their guardian, but ev- there's so much corruption. And one of the things that they played up is that anything legal takes forever and you have to be able to fight after your passion burns out. Mm. And that's what this movie is very much uh, all about. And I really, really responded to it. Oh, good. Um, and uh, it's a movie that I would recommend. It will make you angry, but I think it'll hold your attention. It's not as good as The Insider. In my opinion, it's not as good as uh, a civil action, but it is still uh, a very uh, riveting movie, I would say. Um, all right, next up, a movie that I really enjoyed but I realized if I, it came out in 1983. Okay. But it seemed at the time I probably wouldn't have liked it very much. But we've, we've Well, you would have been one. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> if I were me and I saw it at the time. Got anyway. Um, <clears throat> um, but we've talked before about, like, we did a whole episode about, like, are we, are we harder on new movies than old movies? But part of what it is is that as a movie ages, it, be, it takes on other properties as, like, a time capsule mm-hmm. or... Or, or or whatever becomes fascinating yeah. uh, in its own right. So I saw a movie I'd heard about for a long time, but never seen before. 1983's Valley Girl. Oh, okay. Um, starring Nicolas Cage is the is the big star, yeah. but also Frederick Forrest is in it. All right. uh, as as mentioned, uh, Michael Bowen. Oh, he's the uh, he's wow. The, he must have been super young. Well, he's yeah, he's playing a teenager. He's, oh, okay. uh, he's the he's the jock asshole. But okay. basically, like. I believe that. I don't know if you know the premise of the movie, but the, uh, and I can't remember the main actress's name, Deb something, um, is like a popular, you know, valley girl, mm-hmm. um, who goes to a party the night she breaks up with her boyfriend played by Michael Bowen. And the party gets crashed by two punk rockers from over the hill in Hollywood. Sure. One of whom is Nicolas Cage and they, uh, fall madly in love. But, um, <clears throat> um, Obviously, there's all her all her friends are like this guy's terrible for your reputation. You shouldn't do this. Sure. And you should get back with with Tommy, uh, Michael Bowen's asshole. Of course. Um, also, one of her friends is played by E.G. Daly. Um, you'd know if you saw her, but you also know if you heard her because she's the voice yes. of Babe. Yeah. Yes. Got um, it. Okay, that's right. Yeah. But she also she's and one of the and one of the little song. rascals. Okay. Uh, not the little rascals. Rugrats. Pardon me. Rugrats. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know about that. Uh, never seen a Rugrats. I didn't have cable growing up. Oh, and, that's right. So yeah. I, I never I remember liking it for the most part. Um, anyway, uh, and so this movie is super, not as cheap as spring night, summer night, but it's clearly super low budget mm-hmm. except for the songs. It has like all kinds of eighties hits <laughs> yeah. uh, or early eighties hits, uh, in it. Uh, who made it? Uh, Martha Coolidge, um, who would go on to do, um, other movies you definitely know, and I don't know why I'm suddenly uh, drawing a blank. Well, she did the movie Material Girls with um, okay with uh, the late um, Brittany Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say a few years ago, but we're old now. It's like it was like 15 <laughs> yeah. years old. Yeah, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what else she did like at the time. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. She did Real Genius. Oh, all right. Really good movie. Yeah, it is. Um, and so this one has a lot of that spark. Like, so, uh, okay, what I'm saying is, when I was talking about the idea of being harder on newer movies, I think I might have been um, more hung up on that outside of your Nicolas Cage's, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the acting's pretty bad in the movie. I also think it's, uh, it's depiction of like his punk rock world oh, for sure. early eighties. Los Angeles is so sanitized. Like yeah. watch the decline of Western civilization yeah. <laughs> or suburbia, yeah. you know, which are like from the same period and then watch, you know, when he go, you know, so like th- those are like the vandals and circle jerks and, and black flag yeah. and the band he goes, I don't even remember, know this band from the eighties. The Plimsolls is the, yeah, the Plimsolls are the band that's playing the, uh, yeah. uh the punk club, uh, in, in Valley girl. So I would have gotten hang- hung up on this stuff, I think at the time, but now I just focus on how, great a time capsule it is. Um, but also just how Martha Coolidge's love of these characters, love of this story and the chemistry between, I keep forgetting to look her up, uh, between Nicholas cage and, um, hold on. It's right here. Uh, Deb Foreman. Okay. Deborah Foreman. Um, the chemistry between them is fantastic. Like you believe before the movie has to do the work, when they first meet at that party, you believe they're falling in love from just the way they're talking to one another. It has, you know, a lot of times montages are lazy, but their dating montage, which is set to uh, melt with you, oh. um, is, is like, Oh, they're having so much fun. It's also going back to the time capsule thing. Um, seeing, you know, grandma's Chinese theater, oh, uh, sure. in the Hollywood sequence or in the, in the Valley stuff, they hang out a lot at, uh, the, somewhat recently shuttered Dupars in studio city. Yeah. Um, which is the Sephora now. It uh, is. Um, it closed two or three years ago, I think. Um, yeah, I used to eat at that Dupars quite a bit actually. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean the, the one at the grow or at the farmer's market, by yeah, the Grove still is still there. I think there's one in Pasadena, the Vegas one closed. I'm pretty sure hmm. there was one in downtown Vegas that I've also eaten at, but I'm pretty yeah. sure that closed. Um, anyway, but yeah, uh, um, it's a great time capsule, great performances. It's a lot of fun. Um, I'm definitely glad that I saw it. It's also, I didn't realize for a movie that I thought, I think of as being like, Oh, what's that? Like a, a sort of John Hughes ish movie. Right. It's like, it's a, I'm not going to go so far as to call it a hard R, but it's pretty safely in R rated territory. Okay. There's lots of nudity. There's lots of, uh, cussing and also, um, uh, you know, just, drinking and drug use and, and, you know, characters who are supposed to be like 16 year old girls talking very frankly about, yeah. about sex and penises and stuff like that. And it's pro uh, or con. Uh, they're pretty much pro. Okay. Pretty much pro. Okay. Um, uh, but, um, yeah. Uh, um, Nicholas Cage's character to show that he's punk actually <laughs> like just cusses like a sailor the entire movie actually. And yeah. he has the part when they have their inevitable like breakup before they get back together, you know? Yeah. And he, he mocks her Valley speak and he goes, Oh fuck off for sure. Like totally. <laughs> uh, it's great. It's a great Nicholas Cage performance. Yeah. Um, Good movie. All right. Incidentally, I remember a few years ago, uh, not to get political. I don't know. Buzzfeed put out some horseshit uh, video unsurprisingly. And it was like, uh, like questions that women have for men. The questions are just disguised attacks, incidentally. Uh, and one of them is like, it's like, uh, how can you, is it something like, how can you sit around and like talk about boobs for literally hours? I'm like, who the fuck are you talking yeah, to? I, 
Like, yeah, that, that scene from 40 year old virgin is not real life. <laughs> right. I've never talked about that for any length of time. Really. Yeah. And it's, it's, and I don't mean to like act uh, oppressed or anything, but it's more, it's like, you know, men have done enough shit for real. <laughs> you don't have to make this up yeah. based clearly on, I would guess a single movie, yeah. which is, uh, and even a pretty funny scene, bags of sand. Okay. Good. Moving on. I was reminded by the idea of sitting around talking about penises. Um, Okay. Next up, I saw Greta Gerwig's Little Women, um, which I really, really liked and occasionally loved. Um, I I, basically the same reaction that I had to um, her previous film, Lady Bird, which I really liked and occasionally loved. Um, didn't respond to it quite as as enthusiastically as other people and it's the same with little women it took me a while to get into it um but that cast is so good and greta gerwig just instills this really vibrant sense of lived in organic energy um that it's hard not to get pulled into the uh the ensemble uh interactions and just really enjoy yourself. And Saoirse Ronan continues to be like one of the most reliable actresses. Um, she's very different in this than she was in Lady Bird. And she's very different from Lady Bird to Brooklyn to Hannah all the way back to atonement. And what, what does she say in atonement? As you've done this before. I, I know it's this. your favorite at the time you did it all the time. You la- you talked about it as like, I, I have you, no you memory of this. And it's, it's uh, when she, when the, a very young at this, at that point, a very young Sir Sharon, um, sees her friend, like, uh, she perceives it as an attack, but it's actually just two characters making love. Uh, and she just goes, Delia. it's that, do you remember that <laughs> or Celia or whatever it is? No, you but used funny. to do it constantly. That's very funny. Um, I could see myself doing that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, Florence Pugh, who obviously is having a great year all around, but she, it's a, it's such a specific type of character. Uh, just a spiteful, but she's a, she's frustrating, but you also know that like, Oh, she's just young. Like in 10 years, she's going to be a delight. But right now it's that kind of spunky, uh, uh, young teenager that uh that is frustrating but you'd see that there's potential there as far as personality um i I think it's beautifully shot i really like the music it's told in a way that i that i was surprised by which is it's told not in a non-linear way where it cuts back and forth between these two time periods and it's not a hundred percent clear it takes a while to realize exactly what they're doing and when you're in the past when you're in the present or if you're in the present and the future you know, it's, you're just seeing like, okay, are we seeing, is it a lost situation where we're seeing <laughs> them now? And then we are flashing back to a conversation that, that had, that has some bearing on what we're dealing with. Yeah. Or, are or we, is it a lost situation where you're exactly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, where we're in the present and we are seeing the consequences of choices characters make now finale. Yeah. Lost. We have to go it's, back. That's we have to go back. Yeah. Right, man. I forget how early they did that. It, like it feels early to me. Like I think of it as like, that's a season four season five twist, but no, like at the end of season three, they did it. Um, so yeah, I really, really liked it. Um, it's, it's just a, a genuinely pleasant, uh, well, well well-made film. I think you would like it quite a bit, but you and I, you and I had a similar 
reaction to Lady Bird, which is we really liked it, weren't quite as over the moon about it as some people. I think I think you'll like this one more um, oh. than than Lady Bird. Um, I am actually um, my mom is coming to town this weekend, and I was so Natalie and I were saving Little Women as something to see with my mom. We forgot to tell my mom that, and she's already seen it. But kind of she she was like, "I'll go see it again." She was just excited to see. She's like, "Let's go see Underwater." I really want to <laughs> check that out. Uh, yeah, we could go see Underwater. Um, I, that's that <clears throat> one I was talking about earlier with Dark Waters. Like Underwater hits enough pleasure buttons that yeah that seems like it's up your alley it's like oh it's it's alien but now we're underwater so now we've got some jaws in there as well like it's unfortunate that it came out this time of year because i can't prioritize it over uh, over like 2019 movies but i may wind up doing it anyway because it's not going to be in theaters long all right um so that was little women so it's my turn again right yes uh forgot what i watched what did I watch? Oh, I watched uh, for uh, it should be posting um, this week. It might be posting today. <clears throat> uh, I have started writing, a, I guess, a monthly column for Film Independent, mm. uh, where I, you know, every year at the Independent Spirit Awards, they give out a. Um, an award called someone to watch someone mm-hmm. who's made a movie, you know, not necessarily a first feature, but just sort of on the verge of breaking through based on that year. Yeah. Uh, and I compare it to uh, their more recent work. Uh, I did one last month on uh, Adam Leon. Uh, this month's, which, I, like I said, might be up by the time you're hearing this, might be up, coming up um, soon, was on Lynn Shelton, who just recently directed Sort of Trust, which I mm-hmm. talked about on, I think, the last movie journal or two movie journals ago. And so I went back <clears throat> and watched uh, the film that she won back in 2008, or she won in 2009 for 2008's My Effortless Brilliance, mm-hmm. um, which is... Uh, a terrific movie and once again uh, uh just further evidence that um the the subgenre that got sort of dismissed as mumblecore is uh was not only full of great movies but also has given birth to many great careers mm-hmm. you know i mean yes you can take your uh, you can feel how you feel about the duplass brothers um but we got to, uh, you know lynn shelton greta gerwig mm-hmm. uh, andrew brajowski um joe swanberg like who have yeah. come out of this scene have made a lot of really interesting work yeah um and so my effortless brilliance was actually her second feature <clears throat> stars it has no uh um notable like known actors in it but it stars um Oh shit! Uh, why do I do this to myself? I could just look it up. Yeah, you got your phone right there. But I had it a second ago. I shouldn't. Ha- this is what's happened because I, our friend friend of the show uh, Julie Sesnovich was talking about this to me. Like the idea that because we have external memory now, mm-hmm. our memories are worse because we don't. Like we're worse at remembering things because we know we don't have to. Uh, yeah. Uh, Tony J, by the way, was the voice of Frollo in uh, Hunchback of Notre uh, Dame. I didn't even need to look it up. Sean Nelson is the, the star. Oh, Sean Nelson. Okay. You don't know who that is. No, I don't. But you might know him as a musician. He's from the bands Harvey Danger mm-hmm. and the Long Winters. Okay. Anyway, so he stars as a, uh, um, as someone successful Seattle novelist who, has this this sort of opening montage of him just like putzing around his apartment, practicing pompous interview answers, uh, you know, interview responses, talking to people on the phone, cleaning his typewriter, uh, and then he uh, a friend visits, um, but it turns out the friend is just visiting to tell him to tell uh, Eric the Sean Leonard, what I call, 
Sean Nelson? Sean Nelson's character. Yeah. Not Robert Sean Leonard. Right. Sean different different person. Uh, basically, his friend has just shown up to tell him, I think you're a terrible friend. Uh, and then he leaves again. And then it cuts to sort of an unspecified amount of time later where this pompous windbag author uh, has been invited to a, um, a a university to do a reading and a, and a signing or whatever uh, and decides to go visit his friend who is now relocated to the countryside and sort of drops in unexpectedly. So the second... The chunk of the, the the bulk of the movie takes place with just these two guys and the new guys like the, uh, another like guy who lives in the country mm. just spending the night together getting drunk and bullshitting and and so it's very mumblecore in that way of the just like you know uh, like DV cam type of uh, mm. aesthetic and just like super low budget and just. Uh, like essentially white hipsters sitting around talking and making jokes. But what I think is so great about Lynn Shelton, who um, has a really interesting track record of making movies about men mm-hmm. um, uh, is that I think she's intentionally sort of examining this type of person. The, the, uh, you know, the, the movie's very funny because these are very funny guys, but we also yeah. recognize how much they are using comedy to not address what's, the rift between them or what's going on with their feelings or whatever. Um, it's a, uh, yeah, a, a movie that seems very low stakes, very small, very light, very funny. It's only like 79 minutes long, mm-hmm. but it's also about this sort of massive ongoing generational, like delusions and insecurities that these yeah. guys represent. It's a really, really great movie. And, uh, yeah, you can, you can watch it, I think for free on prime, uh, which is how okay. I watched it. Um, my effortless brilliance apparently never got an official theatrical. Hmm. It, it played, it, 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 it played festivals in 2008 and never really got released, but is available, uh, on, on Amazon. All right. So next up for me is a film that is in many ways the exact opposite of Mumblecore. Uh, in many, many ways, it is James Mangold's Ford versus Ferrari, uh, a film that I really liked. James Mangold is just a is a very reliable journeyman filmmaker uh, who makes. A very, and I, I don't say this in a negative or a positive way. Uh, he just makes very like masculine films. You know, when I think of, he's made two Wolverine movies. He made three Ten to Yuma. He made Walk the Line, uh, and now this. Um, and he's made stuff before that, but like he just, and he makes movies like in a very big way, but not overly ostentatious. Like they're just very. In a way, it seems it seems inevitable that he would have made a car movie um, mm-hmm. because his films are just very solidly built. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, you've seen the film, yes? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I liked it more than I thought I would. Um, you've got two extremely watchable stars, both of whom are really enjoying their roles. Uh, I think it's wonderfully edited, uh, at, which is which didn't surprise me. Uh, Mangold's films usually are like he's one of the more reliable action directors. And while this is not officially an action movie, it might as well yeah, be when yeah. the races are happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, uh, I do feel like it's just a bit long. Uh, like I started to feel it, uh, about after about two hours and then there's 30 minutes left. What I will say though is, and I tweeted this and I think I'm probably going to do like a more than one lesson episode just because of the structure of the show. It forces me to do it, to, to think of it this way. Um, I think the film is about a lot more than people are talking about. 
I feel like when I saw this movie, the first movie I thought of was chef, the John Favreau chef. And, and like we have like from a stencil standpoint, thinking back to my, uh, Columbia days talking about like writing from a, it thinking in terms of analogy, we've got a studio, we've got a producer, a director and a product. Hmm. We have a studio head and just a suit who can't think creatively. And this idea of like, Hey, we want our product to do well, but it's our product. Mm-hmm. Thank you for helping, but it's ours. And it, and it's like John Favreau made chef right after making Cowboys and aliens and two Iron Man movies. James Mangold made this after making two Wolverine movies. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, this is a pre-existing property. It's existed longer than you have. And we need you. And thank you. Thank you for helping us with it. Thank you for doing great work with it. But in the end, we don't want people thinking of you. We want them thinking of us. We want them thinking in this case of Marvel and Wolverine, not James Mangold. And so the film feels like, of course, this is not some small film like chef was, this is a huge movie, but like the stencil for me works so well. And I think it's, it's a movie all about, you know, it's, it's when you look at, at, I have a number of friends from Missouri and, and elsewhere whose parents don't care at all about movies, but they, but their dads especially loved Ford versus Ferrari. And to me, it's like this movie would be such a wonderful in, uh, to talk to your parents about (laughs) individuality, quality and, and, uh, artistic passion. Because that's Christian Bale and that's Matt Damon. They're both trying, like, a lot has been talked about, like, why are these guys doing this? They don't care about Ford. It's like, no, they don't care about Ford. They care about the product itself. I'd say The Wind Also Rises is another film that this reminds me of. So I think there's a lot going on in the movie. The film itself is fine. Uh, And it pulled me in. I really enjoyed it. Nowhere near my top 10, but I really liked it. But from a thematic standpoint, it really really caught my attention. Really interesting. Um... I just realized that the movie I thought I had next was actually a like pre Sundance press screening. So I'm going to save it for our Sundance. Oh, episode. Okay. So take us, take us home with, one Oh, more. okay. Right. This should be your last. Yes, one, right? it is. Oh boy. I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I know. Um, Sorry. That's my fault. Okay. <clears throat> next up. I saw Olivia Wilde's book smart. Oh, okay. Yes. Hated it. Really? So much despite two really great lead performances and the whole ensemble is pretty good. Um, I don't like, I was so ready to like it. Yeah. I, I would have um, thought you would like it. And there are scenes I like, of course, uh, anytime the two are complimenting each other, uh, on their outfit, <laughs> I, it, it had me. I love yeah. it. I like what um, she's like, I like, how dare you? Like as a compliment, <laughs> exactly. that's funny. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, yeah. And, and so moments like that really, um, really ingratiated me to these two characters. Um, Especially, and I don't remember their names, but uh, the the actress who played Amy um, is that Caitlin Deaver. Caitlin Deaver, yes, I thought she was great. Yeah, uh, the other one, uh, the uh, Benny Benny Field Benny Feldstein. Feldstein yeah, uh, she's she's great. Is that too. right? Is it Molly? Molly, yes. And she's April or whatever. I remember her name. That's not unlike me. That's unlike me. That is very unlike yeah. you. Yes, <laughs> um, she's good too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but yeah, Caitlin Deaver, I think like she's, I think she's really the, the core of the movie. I'd say the heart of the film. And because the two of them are such, their performances are so solid and their chemistry is so solid. I really wanted the film to be more than it was like 
I just, it, as I watched, I was like, this feels so, it feels oddly generic in the screen, in the, in the script, the directing, I think it's a good looking movie. I think it's a well put together film. Um, and then I saw that there were four writers and I was like, mm. okay, that tracks because it does feel like it's trying to do a lot of things at once. And, uh, the obvious comparison is super bad. Um, but a yeah, lot of the yeah. things that I like about Superbad, this movie does the opposite. Like Superbad, one of the things that I, that I love about it is that it doesn't think in terms of high, high school archetypes. This one thinks in almost nothing but, um, you know, like oh, here's the drama, here's the drama kids. Separated. Yeah. But then they all end up at the same party at the end. True. Um, and, uh, and I, and I like all of those individual performers. I think they all do a really, well, I think a Billy really Lord's good job. Fantastic as Gigi. She's a lot of fun. I think the girl who plays Ryan, I can't remember her name is so great. Um, I wanted more. I wanted more of her. She's such a, she's such a unique character because one yeah. of the things I like about her is that she doesn't fit any particular yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and then I also like the, um, the one drama kid guy who was hosting the murder mystery party the, with the glasses. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Who, who went to Bartholona. Bartho- yeah. Yeah. And who deep throats the microphone when he's doing karaoke. <laughs> Boy, he sure does. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, See, that's I like not, the, I mean, all the stuff you're saying with the script. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's not as good as not as good as script is super bad, but I laughed consistently throughout it. And I wanted to laugh so badly, but it's just the film felt really, I think I used this word earlier, but like, it feels like really histrionic. Like the characters are just yelling so much that like that being like so big and over the top, it's like, that's not necessarily, you can be funny that way. But I feel like after I felt like they never quite found the right balance for me. And so I chuckled a couple times and, uh, I don't remember when, but I did a, a, a Jimmy Pardo blurt laugh at one point. Cause it really, something surprised me and I don't remember what it was, but, uh, but yeah, aside from a, an extremely likable cast um, and a pretty solid visual palette, like I went in like really, maybe my expectations were too high because people have been talking about how much they love it. Um, I yeah, really expected it to be true. like one of my favorite movies of the year, and uh, it fell well short of that. It really bummed me out. Yeah, that's too bad. I, I guess I maybe I because it's not going to end up in my favorite. You know, we're, yeah. you know, a couple weeks yet until we do our best stuff. It's but like, spoilers. Booksmart is not going to be on there. But um, like it got a, a WGA nomination. Admittedly, Tarantino's not part of the guild, so he's <laughs> so they got to put something in there. Yeah, but like that's. I mean, I think the script is is definitely its its least effective part. From an LA standpoint, though, I really liked it. I've been to Lido Pizza. Oh, you have? Uh, it's really good pizza, and it's a really nice atmosphere. Uh, um, and just seeing, it's like, oh, at the and the end, she's dropping her off at the flyaway, which oh, that's makes right. perfect sense yeah. to me. I think they tried it. Do you think they're trying to have the flyaway double for the airport? Because I'm. Oh, I don't they know. layered in the sound of planes. And while I realized oh, that's the Van Nuys airport. Must have been. Yeah. Yeah. Then they uh, must have been. But yeah, so um, I did enjoy that. Really funny. Yes. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say about it. Something about, oh yeah. Cause I saw it before it came out. So I didn't have all the expectations, yeah. although it got me, it premiered at South by. And so I knew that everyone that I knew who had seen it South by really liked it. So I guess yeah. I had somewhat high expectations, but yeah. Um, no, I, I think it's, it's a uh, very good. It's a, it's a lot of fun and I, it's worth it for all the performances. Um, I'm, 
stick to, I, I said this back, uh, this is one of the movies that has the song, um, nobody speak by DJ shadow. In okay. It. Um, right. you've heard it. It's in, I'm sure movie. I probably have. It's yeah. in good boys. It's in an episode of Silicon Valley. It's like, it's a really good song, but it's been used to death by music supervisors and TV and movies okay. over the past, like three years. It's constant. 